This is Distinct Nostalgia by MIM, and this week we continue to mark a very special anniversary. It's 35 years since the BBC soap EastEnders first burst onto our screens. 7pm on February the 19th, 1985, was when we got our first glimpse of the Fowlers, Beals and Watts. It was quickly a smash hit and was soon competing with Coronation Street for viewers' affections. Last time we met the legendary June Brown, who joined the cast in July 1985 to play Nick Cotton's mum, Dot. But this week we're meeting an actual EastEnders original. Former star Rani Singh and MIM's Ashley Byrne have been chatting to Paul J. Medford, who played Ian, Sharon and Michelle's friend Kelvin, one of the first regular black characters in Soap. Settle back for yet another blast from the past. So, Paul, it's great to talk to you and and meet you after all this time. Actually, you left, sadly, before I started, so we never got to work together on screen. But tell me, what were you doing before EastEnders happened? Well, I was 16 when I joined the cast, so I had just left school. But I went to a theatre school, so... Because of that, I was already in the industry, as it were. I started when I was four in, like, McDonald's commercials and Bob Marley videos. And then I was uh, in the West End a lot as a child performer. So it was just for me at the time, another audition and another job. And at that point, the show had not aired yet. So it wasn't actually even even called EastEnders. It was called East 8. Ah. And it was very under wraps. And I think at that point they had told my agent that it was actually going to be on BBC Two. And I only knew Uh. about my storyline. It wasn't anything else. And so I went in for the audition. And then I think I got a call maybe a week or so later to see if I would do it. And at that point it was a shorter contract. I think it was just for a few months. And so I said, sure, (laughs) why not? What theatre school were you at, Paul? At that point I had just left Italia Conti. Academy, But I went before that, when I was four, I went to Barbara Speaks School, which was run by Phil Collins from Genesis Mother. So if I'm really honest, it's one of those things where people say, how did it change your life? Well, for me, it didn't change my life because I grew up in the industry. I'd already been at the Cannes Film Festival when I was seven with a big film with Norman Beaton. So for me, it was just simply another job. All that changed dramatically was my anonymity because... Prior to that, you know, I was able to just go to the Portobello market unrecognized for the most part. (laughs) But then when you're in somebody's living room three or four times a week, I think it was at that point, you lose your anonymity. So that was a little different. But like being in the industry was nothing new to myself or Sue Tully, of course, who had come from Grange Hill or even Letitia, who'd been to Sylvia Young's theater school. So I think What's most alarming for most people when they think about us is we didn't just get picked off the street. We were actually professional kids who'd already been in the industry for a long time, but we did inhabit those East End characters and we went for it. So I think we were quite believable as kids. Yeah, you were definitely. Did this come from your parents or were you the first thespian in the family? I I come, you know, I'm a kid of the 70s, so my house was a very open, eclectic house. A lot of people of different nationalities were in and out. There were a lot of parties. Uh, My parents are, you know, of the Windrush generation, and they were young immigrants who came to the UK at that point and created a great life. But it was also a lot of fun for them. Uh And so we had a house with a lot of people in it, and there was an Irish lady who used to come to the house, a friend of my dad's. 
She had a daughter who was going to the school, and she said to my dad, "Oh, you must send your son there. He would, I think, he would really um, like this whole singing and dancing thing." So um, that's how it happened. He, she just said, "You must send him. You know, he can go with. You know, they can go to school together there." And uh, there, my mum and dad were like, "Okay." So they just sent me there, well, and you know, unlike now, we as kids, we were left to just do our own thing. You couldn't possibly do that now, but we sort of ran our lives from a very early age. Uh, it does force you to grow up very quickly when you're in that industry. I mean, my peers are people like Bonnie Langford and and those guys, and that's my sort of era. So that's how it happened. I am the only person in my family who does it, but at the same time, it's just a job, and they've grown up with me doing it all my life, so it's no big deal. Was there instant camaraderie? Did you immediately bond with everybody? Did you know any of them from before? Uh, I didn't know anyone. Um, I knew Oscar James, who played my dad, but when I knew him, I was a kid, and he was in a film, a film called Black Joy with Norman Beaton, and we didn't have any scenes together. But I knew who he was, of course. But out of it, my closest bond, and she's still one of my best friends to this day, and her her daughter is my goddaughter, um, was Srila Ghosh, who played Naima, the shop owner. Yeah. Um, so Srila had uh, her, me. yes, her daughter Rani at the time. So at that point, I used to babysit Rani in the in the dressing room while Srila went and did her scenes. So we were oh. we were great. great we, to this day, we're great friends. We still speak every week. Uh, and outside of that, I was very close at the time with Sandy Ratcliffe, who now has passed away. Yes. And of course, June Brown was. Uh, I was very close with her. She, you know, we used to always hang out in her dressing room because she always had a great story to tell. She sent, she sent her regards. She sent. Yeah. She, she yeah. said, "Told me to send her love to you." Thank you. Um, and also David Scarborough, who played Mark, the very first Mark, who also sadly passed away. We were very close as well. That's really interesting, and and uh, I think Sheila went on to become a journal, as have I, and. When did you know it was taking off, Paul? When did you know that you were in something very big? Oh, I realised on the very first press call, because bearing in mind that prior to that, we had only been told about our characters and our storylines. At this point, I didn't know it was a soap opera. I just thought it was a show about my character. (laughs) Turned up to Elstree on the very first press call day, and there was Wendy Richards, who I obviously knew from Are You Being Served? Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh this is something. And then there was the historic photograph of us all just outside the old Vic in Albert Square. And I remember a whole row of press and photographers snap, snap, snapping. And I was like, oh, this is a little much for, you know, sort of a play for today. This is not what I'm used to at the BBC. And I'd worked at the BBC a lot. So maybe that was maybe the Monday, I think maybe the Wednesday in the evening standard, it was announced that BBC was to air its very first soap opera. And there we all were. And I was like, oh, this is quite a thing. And then once it was on within a month and it got such great reviews and such, you know, great press and people, you know, everybody you just bumped into was so, you know, invested in the stories and the characters, I then realised that it was it was a hit. Now, there were very few characters like us, non-white characters like Afro-Caribbean, Asian, on screen at the time. How was it for you being one of those role models? Um, well, I was, you know, it's, I get asked this question quite a lot. And I always have to say I was 16. Ask me it now, I might have a different answer. But at that point, I was 16, just living my life and having fun. And I never considered myself 
a role model as Paul or I never considered that the character was a role model. So I literally went with the storylines wherever they went and just tried to act well. Prior to that, I'd been doing a lot of music and a lot of dance. So it was the first time I was just doing acting on its own. So I was more focused on trying to make that good. But uh, there were certain things I didn't do. There were certain storylines that, you know, I wasn't so fond of. But at 16, you just, you kind of do what you're told. That's also the dancer mentality that I come from. You know, I, these are the steps and that's what you do. You don't have, you don't get a choice of whether you like the routine or not. That's what you do. That's what you're paid to do. So you show up and you read the script that's in front of you. Yes, I was able to make changes here and there. But at that point, there were no black writers. There were no black producers. There were no black directors. There was none of it. It was just what it was. That was the norm then. In this time now, you know, it would be very different in, in this uh, climate. Paul, can I just ask you a question? I I was about because um, you were all about I don't know what what age group were you playing? You're all sixteen year oldish, weren't you? Supposedly at that time. I was a year older than my age group, so I think we were fifteen because we were still at school, so we were wearing school uniforms. Yeah. So we were fifteen, and we were like sixteen, just about turning seventeen, and we were playing fifteen, turning sixteen. Well, I was about twelve, thirteen at the time when EastEnders started, but there was no TV programs really, not not serious um, soaps or dramas that were portraying young people as it were EastEnders was the first that had a a, a, a team of young people that appeared and on, on so it was really quite as a 12 13 year old it was like I was looking up to people like Ian Beale <laughs> and others on the TV so it was fun to see these you know you, you and your characters emerge just tell us a bit about the, the storylines because you you were sort of out of all of them Ian and Sharon and Michelle and whatever you were sort of the most intelligent one weren't you, you really didn't get yourself into trouble as much as the others did you you were sort of didn't you go to university or something but you you also still had you also had affairs with both Michelle and Sharon didn't you at some point just tell us a bit about your character yeah so you know to, to credit to the producers they didn't have me doing anything that was atypical they had him being quite studious he was pretty intelligent he was quite political in some ways and he was also the Romeo of the square yeah. <laughs> so I think if I look back they did that quite well because it wasn't like they they could have defaulted to a top boy scenario he could have been a drug dealer he could have gone down a completely different route but I think they decided to make him quote unquote a good role model and I I thought that was pretty commendable but I think what's really important to remember is that we in real life were 16 and 17 and we were at the same time having fun so whilst we were playing those characters we were still in the nightclubs we were still out having a great time and rocking up to set just in time just knowing our lines (laughs) and so I think that's where we bonded as young people because off camera we had a great we had a really great time so on camera we were all committed to the roles as well and also we took great pride in it I think Mm. Um, as you say because we were the first I mean I, I I don't if I'm the first black actor in a soap opera but I'm certainly the first teenage black actor Mm. in a British soap opera and I did hear that a lot and I did get a lot of praise for portraying that role but you know it's a team effort you know it's not like I wrote it produced it or directed it it's like I was just part of the team but 20 odd million people at this time were watching EastEnders as you say you were sort of you were you're in the program as a young teenager growing up but you're also teenagers growing up in real life as well did that that focus and that pressure sort of get to any of you at the time I mean was it was it difficult to sort of balance all that 
It was fine for most of us. It was fine for myself. It was fine for Susan Tully. She'd come from Grange Hill. She was very used to being in the public eye. It was fine for Letitia. Um, she'd been in show business for a long time. And also for Adam was the youngest of us all. So I think we protected him. It wasn't so great for David Scarborough, who had not been in uh, the industry for such a long time. So he, you know, unfortunately didn't cope with it as well as, as we did. But I had to reiterate that we... As much as we were playing very normal, down-to-earth East End kids on camera, we'd all been in show business by that time for like 12, 13 years. So there was nothing that could surprise us in that sense. We were just glad to be working and having a good time. Now, you're so much more than an actor in one sense. Of course, you came into the show and you were already an accomplished singer and you could do tap, ballet, jazz, contemporary and Latin. So tell me what that was like. You had all these other things. Did you feel... I'd like to do the other things. <laughs> I can tell you exactly what happened in terms of me wanting to leave EastEnders. I actually hadn't, uh, you know, and of course I'm young and, and you just want to live your life. But I did get to the point where after, I think I was only there for 18 months, I realized that I missed singing a lot. I missed dancing a lot. And I missed the camaraderie and the fun of doing live shows. And ironically, looking back at the cast a lot of the people in the cast, like Gretchen Franklin, Anita Dobson, um, most of us uh, had come from musical theatre, more than you would think. Uh, and there were, I think, maybe about 15 of us in the cast that were able to tap dance. And I remember we were asked to do Children in Need. And I remember saying, we can do more than just sing, you know, My Old Man Said Follow the Van and all the old <laughs> Chaz and Dave songs. This is an opportunity for us to show what else we can do. And it was absolutely shut down, categorically shut down. And we did the, the typical, you know, oh. thing. Many, 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 many years later, I think you will see that now in Children in Need, they are encouraged to show their musical theatre skills. I tried yes. to do that back then. I was very much ahead of my time, which indeed is a huge crime for any person to be ahead of your time. <laughs> um, and that is why I decided that I, I just needed a little more stimulation and it was time for me to go. And I actually left six months earlier than my contract was due to end. I just woke up one morning and said, I can't do this anymore. I had had enough of playing the one character. And I had talked it through. The other, the, the other possibility that I was like up for was like, OK, can I write some episodes? Can I direct some episodes? And that also was not on the table either. And so because neither of those two things were on the table, I thought I have to go somewhere else and do it elsewhere. And I was there was no mal there was no drama. There was no it's like I just need to spread my wings because this this place can't contain me anymore. Oh. But it's OK. I get it now. And I'm like, wow. And I look back and think, God, I was really ahead of my time, which feels great. Yes. But at the same time, when I left, it was not like anyone was saying, oh, we're going to take this person and put him in a musical because he's come from EastEnders. I had to literally start again and be in the line with 100 other dancers, 100 other singers. I got absolutely no props whatsoever because it was also a very, very different time. I had to come out of that and prove myself because at the same time, as much as it was 20 million people at home were loving this show, the industry or the theatre industry had then a, quite a snobbery about it. So um, <laughs> tough times, but when you're young, who cares? You can try, you, you know, you, there's, you have nothing to lose at that point. Do you know, exactly the same thing happened to me because I wanted to go into news. I thought that was quite glamorous and different. And when I went into that BBC newsroom, 
I had to sort of bury my EastEnders background and my acting and kids programs background. I love doing children's programs and just start over, you know, sleeping all night in studios and doing news reports and really prove myself as a broadcast journalist. And it took me a long time, but you soared to stardom very quickly. So tell me about that. Well, when I left EastEnders, the phone didn't ring for quite a while, which is fine. And then I auditioned for quite a few musicals. And, you know, many a producer didn't even stay for the audition or, you know, they just wrote me off immediately, which was also it was all stuff. It was all toughening stuff. And then I got a call from someone called Clark Peters, who I had played his son several times on television in Return of the Saint, in Minder, in The Professionals, all those episodics that we had in the 70s. And he was like, I'm writing this show called Five Guys Named Mo. I know that you can do it. And I was like, oh, well, what is it? And he explained it a little bit. He sent me five pages of dialogue. And I was like, well, this is not really a script. This is just five. What is this? I don't know if I can do that either. Because my nerve had gone a little bit at that point because I hadn't Mm. booked anything for a while. And he said, no, 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 come, 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 come over to Stratford East. And we're going to do this little show. And I was like, okay, let me drive. I know I live in West London. Let me make the pilgrimage to East London to do this (laughs) show. And one of the choreographers was Charles Organs, who who I'd taken class with, you know, when I was uh, 15, 16 at what was then Pineapple Studios. And they created this fantastic show. And, you know, you always have to have a champion in the room. And they looked at me and saw things in me that I didn't even see in myself. And that is the truth. And I know that sounds like a cliche, etc. But they pushed me. I mean, I remember going home and having salt baths because I was in such pain with all the splits and all the jumps and and then singing notes that I don't normally sing and all of that. And they, I mean, didn't know it was going to be a hit. It was just for those five weeks at Theatre Royal Stratford East. That's as much as we knew it was going to be. And we rehearsed in the little cabin uh, that was at the Theatre Royal at the time. And then we put this show up and then... That's a situation where the response was overnight. The first time we did the show, the people stood up and we were like, oh, wow, okay. And then the following night, Cameron McIntosh came to see the show and he was like, you know, we're taking this to the West End. And then career began in terms of the West End shows after that. But I have to say, in the 20 years of eight shows a week back to back, which is pretty much what I've been doing what, prior to now uh, with, with holidays in between, for every show that I did, I was never offered a show. Every single show I did, I auditioned for from scratch. And that doesn't happen to everybody. Some people get offered shows left, right and centers. I have contemporaries that don't look like me that get offered shows. But I had to audition for every single show. But it's okay because I got them and I did them and I'm very grateful for them. When we come off a show like like EastEnders and, and you said the phone doesn't ring for quite a while and you were already a real veteran by the time you'd even come into the show. But that affects people in different ways and some detrimentally as we know from fellow cast members and how was that when you said I don't know how it was, how long it was for when the phone didn't ring for quite a while how was that for you that period um I think it's always tough I did a lot of different things of course at that point I focused on my body on my craft I did a lot of yoga I did all those cliched things but they did they really genuinely did help but the other thing I did is I moved home I moved back home from living in the West End I moved back home to the suburbs to my parents house uh, because my grandmother came to live with them and I was like I just want to spend a lot of time with her I mean, who knows how long she has to live so I moved back into what was a very family orientated environment 
So the focus on achieving, on being successful, on working, on continuing to be, you know, seen as successful seemed to be not so important. You know, I got into walking the dog. I got into just, you know, being out playing tennis and stuff like that. So not that I, you know, one has to work and one has bills to pay, et cetera, et cetera. But um, I always knew, though, that it would be all right because I always knew that I had enough options. Whilst doing shows, I realized that eight shows a week is great. It's very hard on the body. You know, it's the hardest thing ever because it's not like being a, a rock musician where you can change the key or swap out the set or, you know, whatever. You have to hit the mark every night. You have to sing the song the same every night. You have to do the steps every night and you have to be really well. And I realized that I liked being with the people, but the repetitiveness of the work became a little too much for me. And at that point, I started having my days free. What else do I like doing? So then I would, you know, people would offer me choreographic jobs or directing jobs or writing jobs. You know what I mean? I thought I always knew that, okay, if I never have to act again, I'm a really good director. If I don't have to direct, I'm a really good choreographer. If necessary, I can pick up a camera. Uh, you know what I mean? I can point and shoot. There's so many things that I could do. So I always kept a very wide sort of uh, mindset during those periods. Distinct Nostalgia is made by MIM. And MIM has a brand new comedy panel show on BBC Radio 4 called The Likely Dads. We worked out a system so you can set up a, a cot like a, like a hamster cage. So we used to put a water bottle on the side <laughs> and have the food at the bottom and then just let the kids take care of themselves. And um... You know when it's a different father and you're slightly older than the rest of us? It's like Victorian times. The Likely Dads, presented by former Blue Peter presenter, now dad of twins, Tim Vincent, and starring Russell Kay. Mick Ferry, Jonathan Kidd and Sean Hegarty. Premieres on BBC Radio 4 at 11pm on Thursday 27th of February. Then available on BBC Sounds. Paul, what do you think about, obviously you you were in EastEnders for 18 months, you decided to go off and, and do other things and have done something fantastically and, and had another career and several, several different careers in, in a way, but what do you think about the people who stayed put? I mean, there are several people who've either stayed put or have gone back to EastEnders. You know, I mean, how do you feel about people who sort of have stayed with the series for a long, long time? I mean, do, do, you, do, you, do you sort of... I mean, there is, I know there are some people you speak to who envy that and think, actually, that's great that they, they've stayed with that for a long time, but others feel as though they want to spread the wings. What, 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 what makes somebody want to stay and others, and others want to flee, do you think? I think you have to do what works for you. And I think if you really, really love your character and you get in a great groove and a great routine and you have a solid outside life, I think it's a great job. I mean, I've sat in shows in the West End. I've, most of my shows in the West End I've done for two years. For Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, I did for four years because it was great. Every night on stage was fun and get into a lovely routine. But I knew when it was time to stop. And I think if you stay in a soap opera, it, there may not be a time to stop because if they keep, I think the key is if the producers, when they revolve, because it is a revolving door of producers, if the producers always invigorate your character with a brand new storyline and they keep you current, I think it's a beautiful job. Now you're vice president of Nickelodeon USA. So tell me about that. In learning more about myself I realized that I was super keen to see how TV is made and I and because I've grown up in it there's just stuff that I know that I didn't even know that I knew then I moved to America in 2003 I think it was went to New York 
tried out for some shows there, did some shows there, and I was like, oh, I think I've fallen out of love a little bit with this eight shows a week thing. What else is happening? And I bumped into um, a friend who at that point was a, a producer, and there was about to be a writer's strike, and she was like, I'm about to do a lot of you know unscripted shows because we can't do writing shows at this point. Do you want to come and work with me? You have an eye for the industry, period. So I was like, sure. And that show, I did a show, a pilot show with her, and then she was like, you know what, come and work on my other show. And that show was America's Next Top Model. And so I ended up being a casting producer on that show for four or five seasons, and that led to Project Runway, and then a whole bunch of, of other uh, unscripted shows in that vein. Um, and of course, you meet a lot of people along the way, and you know, in, a, in, in the United States for sure, a lot of people that are producing or directing those shows have come from theater, have come from performance, have come from, you know, that world. So it's not like a them and us, a bit in the UK, it's a little them and us-ish. Here it's much more mixed up. It's, you know, you might meet an editor who used to be an actor. It's like, it doesn't matter here. You know, you might meet a press officer that used to be an actor or whatever. It's like, it's much more open here. So because of that, my career here in in production was uh, quite good because I had a knowledge of quite a, a lot of things. Uh, and that's sort of, not in a nutshell, but how I got to where I am in terms of, of um, being here at Nickelodeon right now. So how do you look back on, on Anders, which was so, so, so far in your past now? Well, I look back with fondness, first of all, and I thank it for the experience, along with all the other sort of, you know, experiences that I've had in my career. I was on a kid's show called Ghost Train on a Saturday morning for a whole summer thinking, why am I doing this, you know? And now I know, because a lot of the stuff, the jobs that I've done have led me to this point. I think I'm still on Story Makers on BBC for CBBS, And all the things that I've done in terms of TIE work in the UK for Theatre Centre, all of those things have led to this point at Nickelodeon. Because well, I'm not right now at HBO or VH1, I'm at Nickelodeon, where my mm. skills from being a child actor and working in children's television are now really coming into play. Although we're looking at things differently, it's like, you know, it's 2020. So our programming is about multiculturalism. It's about co-viewing. It's about, it's, it's all, everything is creative-led, you know. But I think everything that I've done has led me to this point where I can see things from a broad perspective. And how does, it, how does your career enable you to do things differently in this role? Well, we do a lot of different shows. Like we have a show called America's Most Musical Family, which is very, very musical, yeah. of which I am. Uh, we have another show called Top Elf that came, was on over Christmas. We re, uh, uh, rebooted a, an American version of our British classic, The Crystal Maze. Um, and being British, I understood that. And we did SpongeBob, um, the musical, and I come from musicals. So everything that I know, all my skill sets are being used on every single show that I have to touch. And in terms of touch, I mean just, you know, support the teams that, that make the shows. I have a shorthand to most of them because I get it. And because the, the, the channel is very much about co-viewing, you know, parents and kids watching together, it's about diversity, of which I am not, you know, uh, white, male, 55, I'm the complete opposite. <laughs> so in terms of I can keep an eye on that, there's so much I can do based on who I am and what I've done to make sure that we fulfill the commitment of the channel right now. 
just going back to those years, obviously, you, you know, you were thrown at the deep end, all thrown at the deep end. I know you had, all had your history and, and, and you'd been acting for a while and whatever, but nobody quite knew, as you, as you, as you know, nobody knew how EastEnders was going to take off as it did. Are there any are there any funny things, any things you remember about your EastEnders days that, that were, were all a bit, you know, the whole thing about all that fame and whatever was all a bit surreal at times? Was there anything that you remember being, being a bit, uh, you know, when you think back to it? The most I remember in terms of funny is that we were in, you know, we were kids. We were in trouble a lot. Do you know what I mean? I certainly was in trouble with yeah. Letitia Dean every time we had a scene together because we actually, I don't know if we, how we'd be now, but then back in those days, we couldn't look each other in the eyes without laughing. So there were whole <laughs> days where we were sent home for laughing because we couldn't get our act together or, you know, and they had to reshuffle scenes. I mean, there was a director who literally, he would just go red, he would rage. And of course, that would make us laugh even more because it was <laughs> like being at school and being told not to speak hands on heads and we would die. So that's what I remember. It was an incredible amount of fun. And, you know, yeah, we were 16 and, you know, we would go out and be out all night and then turn up on set the following day, worse for wear, but, you know, doing our best. And were, any, were, were there any of the older actors? Obviously, there were some very, uh, you know, veteran actors in it, you know, people like Gretchen Franklin and others. Were there any of the older actors that you sort of either took you under their wing or you looked up to at that particular point? Um, I steered clear of Gretchen Franklin. Um, I'll just say that and leave it there and draw a line under that. <laughs> June Brown, of course, was amazing. She took us all under her wing. Mm. Wendy Richard was wonderful too. She would invite us up to her room in between scenes. Ren Wendy Richard, of course, was the only one really that was known to the public at that particular point, wasn't she? Yeah, and she was very, very kind to me because we had the same socks. We had both had Argyle <laughs> socks and she was like, I like your socks. And I was, then she put, hoisted up her jeans and said, look, I got the same ones. And then so we were friends from that <laughs> point in time. Well, of course, um, your your character occasionally gets mentioned. I know. Uh, by, by Sharon and, and Ian. I know. <laughs> so I you know, know, I've heard. Every time it gets mentioned, I get a million. I'm not on Twitter, but I get a million people who are on Twitter emailing me saying, hey, you've got to mention, are you back in the show next week? Because they've teased it like <laughs> my friend Jenna Russell, who went in to play the second um, Michelle many years ago, yes. she opened a script and was like, oh, and she called me right away and said, oh my God, you're in next week. <laughs> I'm like, what? She said, I've got a scene with you next week. I'm going to a bar to meet you next week. Why haven't you told me? It's such top secret. I was like, Jenna, this is absolutely not happening. I'm right now in the middle of a show and I'm in the show next week. I know not, I know not what you're talking about. <laughs> but, um, but there have been plenty of occasions where I've been inundated with press or emails because yes. they assume I'm coming back. Um, but it's, I think it's great that they keep the character alive. I think it's very, very sweet. And, uh, you know, once never say never, as yeah. they say. Well, as a, as a fan of the show, somebody watched it from the very, very beginning um, as a little boy. Um, you know, it'd be great to, even if you just came back for one episode, it'd be fantastic to see you. Ah, <laughs> oh, thank you. Now, EastEnders is 35 this year. What do you make of that? The fact that it's been going for, I mean, Coronation Street actually will be 60 years old this year, but EastEnders has been going for 35 years. I mean, that's quite some achievement, isn't it, really? Listen, it's amazing. And people have said to me, would you go back? You know, mm -hmm. and I always say, never say never. Um, <laughs> and it always comes down to, it always comes down to the work. It always comes down to the writing. It always comes down to the storyline. It always comes down to the production. And I think it's only been on that long because it, you know, at the end of the day, it's good. You know, it has its ups and downs when the ratings go up and down and sure, and there's some storylines that are amazing and some storylines that are not so amazing and characters that are great and characters that aren't. But I think where the show is set and the pulse and the beat of the show has always been good. 
You know, from the from the get go, I think the fact that they some bright spark, Julia Smith had an idea to set a show in the East End of London, not the West End, not South, not North, East End. Um, that comes with all that it comes with, the the culture that it comes with, the history that it comes with, from the war up, from the pearly kings and queens, all the legacy that it comes with was the genius stroke. And I think that's why it's probably, you know, lasted that long. Fantastic, fantastic. And you, do you still keep in, did you keep in touch with your on-screen father? Oscar James, yes, I check in on him every now and again. He's great. He lives in London, still re- I don't think he's acting anymore. But whenever I'm in London, I always go and see him or I give him a call or we have a little Skype. The people that I keep in contact with are him and Srila Ghosh, obviously, who played Naima. And most recently, I've been in contact with Linda Davidson, who played Mary the Punk. Yes, yes. She connected me with June. So we had uh, lunch last time I was in uh, London. Fabulous, fabulous. And of course, Anita Dobson. I forgot about that. I see Anita every time because we're connected via Brian and via the whole musical thing. So Anita Dobson, I'm still in contact with a lot. And I'd like to meet you when you're back in town as well. For sure. So, Paul, it's been a real pleasure for me. Uh, Thank you very much indeed. And many congratulations on all of your stellar achievements. Jolly well done. Thank you. And thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Distinct Nostalgia is produced by MIM. There'll be more trips down memory lane for EastEnders fans in future weeks, so stay tuned. But next week, we're turning the clock back to the mid to late 70s. Yes, it'll be time to play the music, time to light the lights. We're remembering when Britain was quite literally going Muppets crazy. Can you tell me what Gonzo makes of it, the fact that he's still around after 35, 40 years? Oh my God! I've had work. I'm telling you, I've 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 been in the shop a lot of times. Doctor Gutnick works on me. I've had my nose lifted. I've had you know everything fixed. Everything's been lifted. <laughs> yes, that's the great Muppets reunion, complete with a guest appearance from Gonzo and some other Muppets. Next time on Distinct Nostalgia. And don't forget, you can keep in touch with everything we're doing by following us on Twitter at distinct underscore by MIM or by going to madeinmanchester.tv. Tell your friends and do let us know about any ideas you may have for docs, shows or reunions. See you soon.